Lovely irony. Uh, this is Mark 10. I'm going to be reading from verse 17. But before I do, let me uh, let me just say this really quickly. Our family watched last night uh, the movie Free Solo, which is uh, about this man named Alex Honnold. I think that's how you say his last name, who climbs the face of El Capitan, which is in Yosemite. It's about 3,000 feet of sheer rock, and he does it without ropes by himself. Uh, it is it is remarkable, um, and what's amazing about it that I think is that you you know he makes it. So I'm sorry, spoiler alert, he makes it. He doesn't die, um, and you know he's gonna make it. But the whole time in the middle of it, you're just so tense, thinking like, oh no, what's gonna happen? And you know, I think the reason that you're so tense is because you're putting yourself in his shoes or his little hands and feet, and you're thinking, you know, if that were me, I would be so frightened. Well, it's good filmmaking. Good filmmaking does that. It puts you in the place of the person in the film so that you actually feel like you're living in it. That's also the way that we're supposed to feel when we see these conversations that people have with Jesus uh, in, in the Gospels. We are supposed to kind of feel like we're in their shoes. So let me invite you to enter into this young man who runs up and asks Jesus a very important question. This is Mark 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But the many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and ask that you would open to us now, uh, that we might come to know you more deeply, uh, that we might uh, hear these words of Jesus to this young man spoken to us, and that we might feel his loving gaze upon us, and Lord, still have to wrestle sometimes very deeply with these words. Lord, will you soften our hearts? Will you, Holy Spirit, work to show us exactly what you have for us to hear today? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
passage in many ways uh, kind of distills the core message of Christianity. Really asking the question, what is Christianity? What really is at the core of the Christian faith? Is Christianity a religion for respectable people who are fundamentally pretty good? Or is Christianity a relationship received by people who are fundamentally really needy? We're going to actually see Jesus discussing these two thoughts throughout his discussion with this man. And we're going to see revealed in this man that his idea for sure is that Christianity is the former. That it's a religion for fundamentally good people who are fairly respectable and have most of their lives together. Maybe that's the way that you think about Christianity. Maybe that's the way that you understand Christianity. If that's the case, let me invite you to let Jesus' words challenge you this morning. As we open up this story, we have this young man who runs up to Jesus. And he kneels down and he asks him this question that's very revealing. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Interesting, that man's whole worldview, his understanding about how life is to be lived, his understanding particularly about Christianity is wrapped up really in that phrase, in that question. Let's take it apart a little bit. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He comes and the first word out of his mouth is good. And Jesus latches on to that one pretty quickly. He responds to the man with a question. He says, why is it that you say good? Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good and it's God alone. Now Jesus, of course, is not saying that he is not good. Sounds like a very nice thing for this man to do, to come up and call Jesus good first thing out of his mouth. It is. It's respectful. And Jesus, of course, is not saying that uh, that he doesn't deserve the respect. And Jesus is not claiming not to be good. And he's not claiming not to be God because he certainly expresses that very clearly all throughout the Gospels. What he's doing, he's actually kind of latching on to this idea here. He's saying, okay, let's take that word, the first one out of your mouth, good, because my guess is that this is the way that you understand Christianity. This is the way that you understand your relationship to God, is that those who are good kind of get in, and those who are bad stay out. As if Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts, and if you check more of the do's than the don'ts, then you're okay, and you're kind of in. That's the decent, that's the understanding of this man. Again, Christianity is a religion for respectable people who really fundamentally are pretty good. But Jesus starts to take that apart. Now the next the thing that this man says is, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do builds on that first one, doesn't it? Okay, if religion is fundamentally something for people who are respectable and kind of have things together, then tell me the things that I need to do in order to be that way. I've probably got most of them checked already. But just go ahead and give me the list, and I'll do it. I'll make sure that I accomplish all of those things that you have given me to do. Because, again, if Christianity is a religion for respectable people who are fundamentally good, then checking all the boxes and doing all the right things is what gets you in the door. Third part of his sentence. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever heard, what must I do and inherit together? Is there anything that you do to inherit anything except be alive when someone else dies? There's no doing involved in an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is given to you. Everything has been done by someone else. 
The wealth has been gained by someone else. The death has actually been accomplished by someone else. All you do is receive. See, right out of the gate in this man's initial statement, he is really explaining and unveiling, revealing what he thinks about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. That if I do the right things, that if I have things together, then I will earn some way and in into God's kingdom. I will be able to earn my way into eternal life. But that's actually not where he ends. He begins with that question, and then Jesus, very fascinatingly, moves into a discussion of the commandments. And he says, okay, well, let's talk about this. If your understanding is that it's religion is something that you do and check off all these boxes, let's start talking about the boxes. Have you kept the commandments? And Jesus lists these commandments. He says this, uh, Uh, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You notice anything interesting about those? Uh, Anything that sounds odd? Maybe the first thing, uh, if you're really familiar with the Ten Commandments, is that uh, you notice that there's one in there that you usually don't hear. Do not defraud, Jesus includes. He doesn't include do not covet, by the way, and he includes instead do not defraud. Now, it could be because at the time there was kind of a cultural understanding that had embraced this particular command as one of the ten. I don't think that's the case. I actually think what Jesus is doing is speaking very pointedly to this man and saying, all right, here are the things that I'm going to hold out before you to ask if you have done them. Have you done them? And this man, of course, says, yes, all of them from my youth. I haven't defrauded anybody. I've earned all of my wealth in a legal and moral manner. I've not murdered. I've not, you know, done all of these other things, right? Check, 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 check. Everything's fine. Maybe you've noticed something else about this list, though, too. There's some missing. Uh, You don't often hear the discussion of the Six Commandments, do you? You know, there's nobody arguing on whether or not a judge should keep the Six Commandments in his courtroom. There's only six listed here. What happened to the other four? The first four are missing. Generally speaking, the last six commandments are kind of other-focused. They are other-focused, and in many ways, you can judge them kind of from the outside. They're about how we relate and act toward the people around us. The first four, however, are actually focused on how we relate to God. How we and our hearts actually relate to God and who He is, they're a lot less easy to judge. So you can tell if you've murdered somebody. You can tell if you've stolen something. It's much harder to understand if you have had another God before God. And so what Jesus is really saying to this man is He is saying, okay, let's go through this list of of all things that can be judged outwardly. And let's see how you've done. And the man says, you know what, actually I've done really well. So here I am, I've, I've accumulated a decent amount of wealth, I've accumulated a decent amount of activity and kind of moral standing, I'm probably feeling really good about my standing in society as well. He's really kind of a guy that's got it all together. So why has he run up to Jesus and ask what he needs to do? We know the truth is he's probably a lot like you and me, and he's insecure. You can kind of hear it in his voice, can't you? Hey, 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 Jesus, I've done all this stuff. Here's the list. Here's my resume. It looks pretty darn good. I mean, I'm on the fast track, on the partnership track here, and I'm only 32. 
And I've got this beautiful family, and I've obeyed everything that I need. I'm, I'm in church all the time. I'm always helping people. I'm serving. I recycle. Everything is good. I'm doing all right. Right, Jesus? Right? Right? You can kind of hear the desperation in his voice because he knows, even though all of those boxes are checked, even though everything on the outside looks really shiny, even though my life is presented to others like everything is fine, there's something inside where there's a hole. There's something inside that just doesn't feel right. And what Jesus actually does then is he he asks him a very penetrating diagnostic question. He asked him this question, you know, what if it were taken away would make you feel the most vulnerable? What if we took it away would make you feel uncentered? What if it were taken away would make you feel so unsettled that you didn't really know what to do with your life? It would kind of just send you haywire. What would happen if we took that thing away? Jesus' way of asking him this diagnostic question is to say, There's one thing that you lack. You've done a lot of things. Let's talk about this one other thing. Why don't you sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And this man, of course, when faced with that, can do nothing but bow his head in sadness and turn and walk away. Jesus then turns to his disciples, really interestingly, in verse 23, and says this, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Interesting, isn't it, that that's how Jesus turns and talks to his disciples here. There's a man who has come to him with great wealth. Jesus has asked him to give it all up for his sake, and the man has not been able to because it's the one thing that he's built his life on. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, you know, it really is so, so hard for those who are wealthy to enter God's kingdom. He says it's harder than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And just by the way, no, there is no small gate in Jerusalem called the needle gate that can just barely squeeze a camel through. Jesus is using language here that is he's overstating in order to prove a point. And the point is, it's really hard. Our world has really been divided for a long time over how we think about wealth. There are some who kind of look very suspect on anybody who is wealthy. And they look in the world and they see, you know, there's a connection very oftentimes between great wealth and oppression. And so oftentimes the people that have a lot are, are, are oppressing the people that have very little. And they're using their power and their wealth to take even from those who don't have much. And they see this connection and what they say is, you know what, wealth is just kind of suspect in general. And so, immediately, if there's money involved, if there's wealthy people, if you're wealthy, then you're really kind of guilty until proven innocent. Now, that wasn't the understanding of Jesus' disciples at the time. Actually, they thought just the opposite. They thought, if you're wealthy, you're really good until proven otherwise. Because what they saw is that wealth and any kind of external physical blessing was a, a, a show of God's blessing on you. They would look at wealth and say, well, if you've got a lot of possessions, if you've got a lot of money, if you've got a lot of children, if you've got a lot of people working for you, if you've got a big field, whatever it is, then God must be blessing you. Now, the church still wrestles with that. All over our country and all over the world, that message is actually preached every Sunday. 
that the way to know if God is blessing you is to look at your bank account, look uh, at the amount of stuff you have, look at the size of your house, look at how nice your car is, and that's the way that you can tell if God loves you or not. And so many people are actually increasing all of those things to make others and themselves feel like God loves them. Fascinating though, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't fall into the trap of either of these opposite extremes. In fact, he makes a very clear point to his disciples and to this man and everybody who's watching and those of us who are reading to say that his money was not actually earned in a fraudulent way. That it was all earned honestly, that he hasn't done anything wrong by being wealthy. But then he also is able to turn to his disciples and say, it's really hard for rich people to get into heaven and it blows their mind. They have no understanding how to do that. Well, gosh, if a rich person can't get into the kingdom of God, who can? So why does Jesus talk like this? Well, what's his point here? Well, I think one thing that we can take away from this is that money has a very strong grip. Again, in that movie that we watched last night, uh, watching this guy train to climb a mountain was pretty incredible. He would do pull-ups with his fingers, literally pull himself up, his body weight, over and over and over again on a little board, like with his fingers. He had the strongest hands I think I've ever seen. And you would watch him climb this mountain and he would grab a hold of some little teeny tiny rock and support his whole weight simply with his grip. Incredibly strong grip. What Jesus is saying is that's actually the way that money functions. It's got an incredibly strong grip that can take hold of our hearts and squeeze and hold tight and it's really hard to let go. There was a, uh, a project done last year at Harvard Business School. Uh, a survey where they surveyed 4,000 millionaires. And this is millionaires and billionaires, actually. So this is 4,000 people worth at least a million dollars. And they asked them two things. They said, we want you to rate your happiness on a level of 1 to 10. And then, we want you to rate what would it take to get you from where you are to a 10. How much more money would it take? You know what the highest answer were? The most respondents, 26, I think, percent of them said 10 times more money. It would take 10 times more for me to reach a 10. And what was amazing is that that crossed actually the board between somebody who was worth $1 million and somebody who was worth $100 million across the board. It didn't matter how much money you had, all of them wanted more in order to be happy. There is something about it that just the more that we have, the more that we think we need. The more that we have, the more that we want. That grip is just tight and tight. And it does not it's not just tight on millionaires, okay? This is the same kind of thing that takes hold of my heart. Uh, in American standards, uh, my family is not wealthy. But it takes hold of my heart just the same way. I desire the same things. And you know what? It's not just about consumption either. It's not just about the way that we spend our money. This can even happen in the way that we give. Money can have such a hold on our heart that the way that we give is oftentimes manipulative. Uh, Tim Keller in his book Prodigal God tells this parable. He says that there's a, there's a king in this land and there's a peasant who, uh, who, who works for the king, who, who is on the king's land. And the peasant grows this incredible carrot, this huge, beautiful, juicy carrot, and he brings it to the king. And he says, oh king, uh, out of a show of my love and respect for you, I want you to have this carrot. It's the best thing that I've ever grown. And the king, who is wise and discerning, 
sees his heart and receives the carrot and says, Thank you. This is a wonderful gift. And because of your love and your respect and your faithfulness, I have this plot of land that's actually right next to yours. I'm going to give it to you. And you can work that land as well. Grow beautiful things. Make wonderful things out of it. Well, this conversation is overheard by a nobleman who's sitting close by, and he thinks, well, goodness, if a carrot can get you a piece of land, what could something bigger than a carrot get you? And he comes to the king the next day, and he brings this beautiful stallion. And he says, O king, you know I raise horses, and this beautiful stallion I've brought as a gift for you to show my love and respect for you. And the king, who is wise and discerning, discerns this man's heart, and he says, thank you. I appreciate the gift. And then the nobleman says, Well, wait a minute. The other guy who brought you the carrot got a piece of land out of this. And the king says, Yes, his gift was for me. Your gift was for you. (laughs) Isn't that sometimes the way that we give, though? Some way that we feel like we're going to manipulate God into getting the things that we need out of life, the things that we want? That we're going to give in order to get something back. There's a tight hold oftentimes in our hearts. So what's the point here? Is Jesus just kind of this greedy man who wants our money? Is this, you're sitting thinking, here we go again. We came to church and they talked about how much God needs my money. Does Jesus really want our money? Is that what he's talking about? No, it's a lot worse actually. Jesus wants your heart. That's what the discussion is about. Jesus is talking about our hearts. In fact, think back again to that discussion of the commandments. What is one of the really conspicuous absences there? It's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the first thing out of Moses' mouth when he comes down from Mount Sinai. He says, the Lord has rescued you out of Egypt. He's rescued you out of slavery. Here's the first thing that you need to know. He needs to be center. He needs to be in the middle. He needs to be at the center of your heart. Don't have any other God that displaces Him from the center. Martin Luther said, breaking any other commandment actually breaks the first commandment. And if you don't get the first commandment right, you'll never get the other nine right either. There is something about that idea of idolatry. And when we're talking about idolatry, we're not talking about literally bowing down to little sculptures. That certainly can be the case around the world. I'm talking about actually something much more insidious. It's placing something at the center of our lives where God is supposed to be. See, we were created to love and to live for and to enjoy God. He's supposed to be at the center of our lives. That's the way that we're supposed to work well. But instead, we actually live for lots of other things. We live for work, or for pleasure, or for wealth, or for beauty, or for freedom, or for control, and we place those things at the center of our lives, and it displaces everything else. Think about how our solar system works. The sun is in the middle, and everything revolves around the sun. And it works well that way, doesn't it? We get to wake up, and there's a sunrise in the morning, and there's a nice warm day, and there's a little bit of rain, and it works well. Now, if you take Mars and you put it at the center, then everything else revolves around Mars. It's going to mess things up royally. It's going to really throw everything out of whack. If you take the thing that's supposed to be at the center and you make it an ancillary thing that revolves around something else, everything is destroyed. If you take something that's supposed to be enjoyed as a good created thing and you make it an ultimate thing, 
not only will it ruin that thing, it will ruin the rest of your life as well. That is what idolatry is. It is when we take when when we take a hold of something in our hearts and we make it the center and we live our lives for it and we sacrifice all other things for it and we say you know what in order for me to feel good about who I am in order for me to fill the holes in my heart I've got to have this thing we're insecure just like that man that young man who ran up to Jesus was and we say you know what I'm going to use my wealth to fill all of the holes in my life. That Jesus should be filling. Well, if you're using your wealth to fill all the places in your life where you feel poor, in an inside way, then you are actually displacing Jesus who has given you the wealth of His grace. If you're using your beauty to fill all of the holes and the places in your life where you feel ugly inside, then you are actually displacing the beauty of the Savior And you're putting something else at the center. If you're using your control or manipulation over things, if you're using freedom, if you're using anything to put at the center to make you feel like life is worth living, to make you feel okay, then you are displacing God who is supposed to be there in the middle. That is idolatry, friends. That is the way oftentimes that our hearts work. And that is what Jesus is calling us away from. So let's, let's, end, let's end this this way. What do, what do we do with the idolatry in our hearts? What does it look like to turn away from idols? Well, here's the first thing, and I think something we really need to notice, and, and I want you to really pay attention here. Mark tells us that Jesus, right before he says the most challenging thing that this man has ever heard, he looks at him and loves him. Do you know that Jesus, when he challenges our idols... When he comes and he says, this thing at the center of your life you need to remove, do you know that that is the greatest love that he could show to you? To take that thing out of your life that will ultimately destroy you is a loving thing to do. And we're not told what happens to this man. I wish we had the record. My hope is we see some other time in the future where he comes back and he says, you're right, Jesus. I've sold it all and I'm coming to live for you. Jesus loves him, and he loves us, so we can enter into the process of repentance and faith. So here's a couple of practical things. What does that process look like? Four steps I would lay out. Here's the first step, is that we've got to do the hard work of uncovering the idols in our hearts. Remember that diagnostic question that Jesus asked, or that statement that Jesus gives to this man? We've got to do some of that diagnostics in our hearts, too. We need to start asking questions like, what if it were taken away from me would make me feel totally off-center? What if it were removed would make me feel so off-kilter that I wouldn't really know what to do with myself? Or maybe it's, what are the things that I spend most of my time thinking about? What are my Pinterest boards filled with? What's my internet history filled with? What are the things that fill my imagination when I'm not thinking about other things? What are the things that either create or soothe anxiety in me? What are the things that I think about most, especially when I'm anxious, especially when I'm depressed, especially when I'm not feeling good? What are the things I'm using to soothe that? What are my greatest fears? What's my biggest nightmare? It's usually those questions that can be really helpful to starting to understand, oh, here's the thing that I'm holding on to really tightly. Second step, 
We've identified the idol. Now we get to actually see what Jesus has done. And this is, of course, the good news. This is the really fun step. We get to go and preach the gospel to ourselves over and over. To look at the Bible and say, wow, look at this truth. Jesus has forgiven me. He has loved me. He has given me His righteousness. He has become man so that He could take on the life that I should have lived and then die the death that I should have died. He has adopted me into His family. He has called me His beloved. He has called me righteous. He has placed me in Him where I'm so united to Him that we can't be removed. He has placed my sin as far away as east is from west. This is what Jesus has done for me. If you're having trouble believing those things, go to Ephesians 1 and just read it over and over and over and over and listen to the beautiful description of what Jesus has done for you. That's step two. Really know what Jesus has done. And then step three is like it. What does that then mean about who, about me? What does what Jesus has done mean about who I am? And this is really cool here. Look at, uh, follow along with me on verse 29. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. What, G- what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about real stuff, but scholars will also tell you he's probably talking also about some categories. Uh, houses, that's kind of the place where I belong. That's my identity. That's who I am. Mother, father, brothers, children, that's my family. That's my community. That's who I'm with. And then lands, and actually in that time children probably would have been included in this as well. That's actually what makes me stable. That's what gives me my food or money so I can live. That's my stability. So we have identity and community and stability all together. Jesus is saying, yes, it's going to come with persecution, but guess what? It's also going to come a hundredfold more than what you gave up. An identity that cannot be shaken. An identity that cannot be moved. An identity that doesn't seesaw whether or not your bank account does. An identity that doesn't change whether or not you've been good or bad that day. A community that you're in, where people accept you when you're rich and when you've lost all your riches. A community that accepts you and values you no matter who you are. A community that you belong to that is not based on your activity, but actually on what Jesus has done. A stability that is, that is uh, rooted in heaven. A stability that will never change. A stability that will never seesaw based on your own activity. A stability even that we've been given a deposit for, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. That God has said, just so that you know I'm serious, here is my spirit. He's going to hold the place for just a little while. So that you know that you are stable and secure. I've got you. That's what's changed about us, friends. And then the fourth step. And this one may be the hardest. And it's believing those things. It's believing them in a way that actually changes our activity. Now maybe for you, that means that you go from understanding Christianity as a religion for respectable people who are fundamentally good, and to understanding that Christianity is a relationship given and received by people who are fundamentally needy, but have been shown incredible love and grace by the Savior. 
Or maybe for you that means that the grip that money has on your heart can be loosened a little bit. That you'll pray for the first time of what, how God might call you to use your money. That you might consider for the first time even the concept of tithing. That you might put a little further down the list of what you need to accomplish in your life. You know, that career achievement that you think is going to be everything. What does that look like for your life? We're going to spend just a couple of minutes actually um, pondering those things. Getting to do a little bit of that hard work. Taking the first step here of starting to identify those idols. In fact, I'll put up on the screen behind me some of those diagnostic questions. I would encourage you just pick one and start to write some things down so that you might continue this work at home. Before we do, let's pray that the Lord would be at work in us, that He might lovingly reveal those idols so that He might reveal more clearly the love that He has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray, uh, thank You for this love that You've shown, uh, for the love that You've shown this man that was a difficult love. Uh, It is a difficult love for us as well. It is oftentimes a painful process. We ask that you would be with us as we enter into it. That you would remove and strip us of the things that we put at the center of our lives. And Lord, that we might see more fully the beauty of the gospel so that it might transform us. So that we might be those who cling more tightly to what is true about us. And who live out of that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.